Last week, we began a three-week study uh, of what the Bible says about sexuality and gender, and we started by talking about God's original design, starting in the book of Genesis, for men and women. At the end of creation week, God looked at what he made, and he said, that is very good. Anyway, God looked at human beings that he had made, and it was very good, he said. Uh, uh, he, his plan to make men and women both in his image, and we are partners together in accomplishing his purposes. Human beings, men and women, are equal but not interchangeable. We started there because what can get lost in this discussion that we have at times is the goodness of God's original plan. Now, today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about where we are in relation to this uh, creation design. We're going to think about why we have moved so far as a society, as a culture, away from it. Before we even do that, I want to show you, I want to demonstrate to you again why the Bible helps us in this regard by pointing out to you two verses in the book of Genesis. We're going to come back to Genesis in a few minutes, but turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. Genesis 2.25, a verse that you know that we have looked at before, but I want to show it to you again to help us understand, yes, even though this is a contemporary challenge and the Bible is a very old book, it still helps. It speaks to us. Um, we believe that the Bible, uh, it, it, we come to the Bible as the Word of God. This is the authoritative self-revelation of God. But even those who don't share that same conviction find the Bible to be insightful and helpful. And look what it says here in Genesis 2.25, at the end of creation, uh, there's a statement about Adam and Eve, this very good design that God has made, and how they feel about themselves and about one another. Genesis 2.25 says, Adam and, his e Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. It's a statement about their bodies and a statement about their relationship with one another. Now contrast that in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have disobeyed God, we'll talk about that in a few minutes, and, and brought this massive change into the world, uh, then verse 7 says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Again, another statement here about their bodies and about their relationships with one another. Before, before, uh, there was no shame. There was one flesh. And after, now, there's discomfort with their bodies and hiding from one another. Is it any wonder that we should be today be talking about bodies and relationships? Here, even from the beginning, the Bible is attuned to this reality. Now, before we talk about how we got to where we are, I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about where we are right now, where we are, not just how we got here, but where we are. And I want to give you a vocabulary lesson. Uh, I'm not going to give you technical definitions this morning, uh, but hopefully I want to give you accurate ones and practical ones. These are not words that we're used to talking about a lot on Sunday mornings in church, but you hear them in the news and you see them in uh, uh, social media feeds. So let's talk about them and get a handle on some of those words this morning. Six of them that I want you to be attuned to. This um, uh, transgender moment that we're in has introduced a host 
of vocabulary words. Here's six I think you need to know to, to get a handle on what's going on. First, we'll start with the word sex, the word sex. And I want you to think here primarily about biology, biology. When in this, in this realm, we're talking about the word sex, we're talking about your biological, physical sex. You are either male or female. Now, at this point in time, there are some who want to introduce uh, the, uh, the reality of intersex people. That's a very small minority of people, and it doesn't undo this basic pattern of male or female in your genes. Every cell of your body is either, has either XY or XX chromosomes. There are biological markers of your sex, your organs, your secondary characteristics, the general size and shape of your body. And at this point in time, some people want to talk about the sex assigned at birth or your birth sex. That's how you were born, male or female, your biology. Now we move on. Second word I want you to know or to think about is the word gender. Gender. And gender refers these days to your attitudes, your feelings, and your behaviors associated with a given sex. Now, this definition even might be a little bit out of date because uh, it seems to me that the connection between gender and sex is becoming less and less tight. But um, uh, 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 there are genders associated with biological sex. You, we can talk about a male gender or a female gender, and it's distinct from your biology. This is attitudes, feelings, behaviors that are, uh, uh, originally were associated with your sex, but not necessarily now. Attitudes, feelings, behaviors. There's your body, and then there's how you feel, your attitude, your behaviors. How many genders are there? Well, the list grows and grows and grows. Um, one, if you Google this, you can find how many genders are there. You'll get a lot of answers. 50, 72 seems to be a common number and answer that question, how many genders there are. You can talk about male gender or female gender. You can talk about non-binary, which means you neither male nor female. You can talk about odd gender and then um, 69 more. It's because of that long list that, that I think that it, we are becoming less and less to associate gender with your biology. I don't know if this is true or not. I, um, it might have been a, a joke, I'm not sure, and it might not even uh, be predominant in the movement, but I saw a video of a young woman talking about a gender. Uh, she gave it the term cake gender. It's for people whose attitudes, feelings, and behaviors are associated with being a multi-layered person. Just long list, 72 genders. That doesn't seem to be, that gender doesn't seem to be associated with sex or not. I'm not sure if that's true, what she was saying, or if, it's, if, it, if, it was, if they were trolling somebody with that, I'm not sure. But, but, but gender, not associated with sex, we're talking about your attitudes, your feelings, your behaviors. Third on my list here, gender identity. Gender identity. And the key word there is identity. And we're talking here about your self-perception. Who are you? There's your sex and then there's your gender. About 0.6% of the U.S. population identifies as a gender other than their sex. Um, some people believe your gender identity is innate and fixed. That doesn't appear to be the case. For example, 
Children who express a gender identity different from their sex when they're young often change as they go through adolescence. That's why some people, um, not just religious conservatives, but some people are so concerned about the affirmation and puberty blockers that are given to little children uh, who uh, identify as a gender other than their sex because uh, the vast majority of children who do that change in adolescence. Now, number four, sexual orientation. Sexual orientation. Here we're talking about your desires, your desires, your attractions, those to whom you are attracted. You can talk about opposite sex sexual orientation. You can talk about same-sex attracted people. This is where the phrases, uh, words gay and lesbian would apply. Um, and again, here, your sexual orientation does not appear as fixed as some people argue that it is. There's a tremendous amount of controversy over here at this point in time um, when um, we talk about changing your sexual orientation and is change in your sexual orientation possible? And there are some people, I don't know um, any faithful followers of Jesus who advocate conversion therapy, but I know faithful followers of Jesus who are counselors who uh, when someone comes to them and says, I have these desires and they are un unwanted, help, uh, help them manage and respond to those unwanted desires. Uh, it's it not, is it in, are sexu is sexual orientation or desires innate and fixed? 80% of males who have reported same-sex attraction as adolescents no longer do so as adults. Doesn't seem as fixed as some people might like to argue. Now, uh, by the way, if you're wondering, the statistics I'm citing this morning come from a report called Sexuality and Gender, uh, published online at a website called The Lost Atlantis, The New Atlantis, sorry, The New Atlantis. Um, that, that article, it's 143 pages. You can read just the executive summary if you want. It's uh, uh, 200 peer-reviewed articles that they summarize into this 143-page uh, report. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute and think about those four phrases, four words that we've used so far, um, sex, gender, gender identity, and sexual orientation. And we believe that according to God's design, those four things go together. They line up. It's a, a, a package deal. They match. When you're born and the doctor says, it's a boy, or you get an ultrasound uh, before you're born and the ultrasound text says, it's a girl, your parents then will bring you home after you're born and raise you as a son or as a daughter. You grow as a boy and as a girl, and then when it comes to uh, the time to develop relationships, you are oriented towards members of the opposite sex. This is God's good design that your sex and your gender and your gender identity and your sexual orientation match. We believe that faithful Christian parenting recognizes, honors, and celebrates the connection of those four things. We keep our eye on God's design for manhood and womanhood. Uh, we're aware of the potential pitfalls of stereotypes. We're attuned to the temperaments and gifts of our children, but we raise sons and we raise daughters. We don't raise generic children. 
Uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples of how this worked in our house. We used to, when we would walk home uh, from church, sometimes instead of going across the lawn, we would walk down the driveway and up Walnut Hill Road to our house. And uh, we had a rule when we got on Walnut Hill Road, I would announce it, boys on the outside, girls on the inside. When we walk down the street, boys are on the outside of the street, girls are on the inside of the street. Now, notice, remember this, okay, when my son was four years old, this is the rule. Boys on the outside, girls on the inside. His older sisters were much more situationally aware than he was, much more attuned to traffic, much more attuned to the dangers of walking on the street than he was. It may have been the case that my wife was on the inside and he was on the outside, but she had a death grip on his hand. That may have been how it was. But I, we're in the process of here now, get this in your mind, this is how this work, works. Boys walk on the outside, girls walk on the inside. Or, how many times did I say this, I don't know, to my son, your hands were not given to you by God to hit your sisters, but to protect your sisters. God did not give you hands to hit your sisters, God gave you hands to protect your sisters. Now, again, at the time... At the time, his sisters were much more capable of protecting him. They could clean his clock. They were older, bigger, and stronger. There may be a debate at our house this afternoon about still whether or not that is the case. <laughs> but eventually, eventually, right, statistically, he's going to be bigger than they are and stronger than they are. And I wanted him to know, even at four years old, that the reason that God made men bigger and stronger is not so that they might abuse those under their care but so that they might protect the vulnerable. Faithful Christian fathers and faithful Christian mothers know what the Bible says about manhood and womanhood, and from the beginning, disciple their sons and daughters to pursue those goals. So these, these four match your sex, your gender, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, according to God's good design. It's what he meant when he made us male and female. Now, we should recognize, too, though, that the standards of the Bible are even tighter than those things. Think particularly about sexual orientation. Your sexuality as a man is not directed at women in general, but in the providence of God, one woman. And uh, Christian wives are not oriented toward men in general, but oriented toward one man. Now, uh, let me be blunt here if I can. The body you have in all its, all its parts, men, is not for women in general, but for one woman, wife. And the body you have in all its parts, ladies, is not for men in general, but for one man, husband. That's a high standard. A high standard uh, against all, uh, which all of us fall short in some ways. Now, this is God's good design, and now when we move to vocabulary words uh, five and six, we describe what happens when we fall short of that standard. Number five, gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is anxiety, distress, anguish, and conflict sometimes too that comes from your gender identity. It's what happens when your gender identity doesn't match your biological sex and that causes you stress. 
And this is a real feeling, and it can be very painful. It's not a chosen experience. It's confusing and frightening to look at your body and feel like it doesn't match who you are. You look at your, your body, this doesn't match who I feel like I am. People who experience gender dysphoria are image bearers of God and uh, uh, are worthy of our honor and respect as image bearers. And yet they have this, what can be very real and painful experience. Now you can have gender dysphoria and not act upon it, but if you do, then number six, you are transgender, transgender. Transgender is expressing a gender that doesn't match your biological sex. You, we can talk here, the, the, the phrase, you'll sometimes see it, uh, transgender man. A transgender man is someone who is born as a female, but now identifies as a man. Or transgender woman is a, bio, a biological man who identifies as a woman. Sometimes it's hard to follow. You got to think about this. Um, some people prefer not to use the term transgender woman. Uh, they say things like transgender women are women. And, and if you, you say transgender women, you are diminishing their womanhood. So the claim goes. That's why um, people say things like, they talk about men who give birth. If you think about that. What are, what are we talking about here? When someone says, he gave birth, it's a biological female who identifies as a man. 0.3% of the U.S. population, about 700,000 people, are transgender. But that number is growing, growing, growing fast. Now, a central tenant of this movement of, of those who identify as transgender, many of them, is this very important tenet that they believe that identity trumps biology. Identity trumps biology. That is, identity is more central than your biology. It's more important than your biology. Notice here, something that can be changed, your identity, is elevated against uh, something that cannot be changed, your biology. Even though I know we have puberty blockers and hormone therapies and surgeries, understand that biology is embedded in every single cell. You can't change every single cell. Identity trumps biology. Good example of this, of course, and this is somewhat controversial, is uh, Leah Thomas, the swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm sure you saw some news coverage about this. When uh, William Thomas enrolled in the University of Pennsylvania uh, and joined the uh, swim team, he joined the men's swim team. During the COVID pandemic, there was no season, uh, William Thomas transitioned to become Leah Thomas and returned to school and joined the women's swim team. Uh, there was a significant debate about the fairness of this, of the, the biological uh, advantages of a, a male body. Thomas had those biological advantages of a male body and yet competed against women in the pool, biological females in the pool. Uh, Leah Thomas broke records. Leah Thomas won national championships. And there was a lot of debate about this. But identity trumps 
biology. So if you argue otherwise and you don't celebrate Leah Thomas's accomplishments, then you can be accused of transphobia or bigotry because identity trumps biology. Or think about our former Secretary of Health in Pennsylvania, Rachel Levine. You saw her a lot uh, on uh, news coverage during the pandemic. Dr. Levine was, I believe, uh, in the 50s uh, during a time of transition. Uh, the Biden administration, uh, Dr. Levine was appointed uh, the uh, leader of one of the military services, the Public Health Service, uh, and Dr. Levine is a four-star admiral in that uh, uh, position. And the Biden administration proudly announced that Dr. Levine, thanks to Joe Biden, is the highest-ranked woman ever in the United States Armed Forces. I wonder, I wonder about the biological women who are one-star or two-star admirals and how they responded to that news. Identity trumps biology. And this, this, uh, this, you can see with this some of the instability within the LGBTQ movement because to gay and lesbian people, biology matters. Bodily attraction matters. At the core of their sexual orientation is that someone else's body matters. They're attracted to same-sex bodies, not opposite-sex bodies. So biology matters to uh, gay and lesbian members of the LGBTQ movement. But to the trans community, identity trumps biology. They're really not on the same side, and I, there's this conflict. You can see this sometimes in the conflict between uh, feminists and uh, trans rights activists. So some of the um, criticism that J.K. Uh, Rowling has received, or Martina Navratilova, when she said she didn't think that transgender women should be competing against biological women in tennis competitions. Um, I'm not sure how this instability is going to develop, and I don't, it can't last. I don't think this instability. So that's, so understanding some of those words, where we get to uh, help us understand where we are. Now, the question next that I want to ask and answer is, how did we get here? And you should understand that people try to think about this situation through different lenses, different lenses. Uh, I want to share with you some of the lenses that people use to think about how we got where we are. There's the biology, the first one is the lens of biology, biology. There must be some genetic cause. There must be some genetic cause, some say, um, to why someone would be gay, lesbian, uh, or, or transgender. The problem is so far, if there is a biological cause so far, we have not found it. Do you remember, some of you in the, are old enough to remember in the 80s and 90s, the search for the gay gene? I'm going to find the gene that indicates that I am gay or lesbian, and um, then I was born this way, and who... Uh, no one has the right to, to question or challenge my attraction. Um, there, uh, there was, it made a lot of news. It, the studies, though, uh, upon review, are just inconclusive. Inconclusive. Or uh, right now, one of the, the great theories, the biological theories, they have not been able to prove this, but this is a biological theory, is called the brain sex theory. And the idea is that if you're a biological male, but your, sex is, or your brain is more like a biological female, then you're more likely to be transgender the brain sex theory. 
Uh, it's a theory they haven't been able to find it. There may be a biological cause to these things or a biological contributor to these things. If there is, they have not yet found it. So a different lens. Some people use the lens of sociology and psychology to figure this out. Um, this is not as helpful either. What's interesting and can be challenging and controversial to talk about is there's a, a tremendous amount of correlation, correlation that arises in these sociological, psychological studies. For example, non-heterosexual populations. So compared to heterosexual populations, non-heterosexual populations have higher incidence of anxiety disorders, depression, substance abuse, and suicide. Have you heard the statistics? They're terrible. Uh, the, the transgender population is uh, um, much more likely uh, to commit suicide, members of the transgender community. So among the U.S. population, uh, the uh, incidence of those who attempt suicide in general among all Americans is 5%. Among members of the transgender community, suicide attempts 41%. Uh, Non-heterosexuals are about two to three times more likely to have experienced childhood sexual abuse. Now, it's important to keep in mind here, these are correlations. These things that happen together. We're not trying to establish causation as at this point in time. So, for example, somebody might come along uh, who is opposed to transgenderism and say, look here, uh, it, this is an expression. Your sexual confusion is an expression of anxiety or depression or, or maybe the consequence of child sexualhood, uh, childhood sexual abuse, that it's the cause and then others would come along and say, oh, no, 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 no. It's not the cause. It's the result. It's because someone is transgender, they're rejected by our uh, bigoted society, and therefore they're more likely to be anxious and depressed. You see the difference? I'm not making any claims this morning. There's not been enough evidence to make a claim about cause versus result, um, but, but these correlations exist and, and cause people to think about this. What's clear, what's clear is that men and women and uh, boys and girls who are experiencing gender dysphoria are struggling. Even more reasons for us to speak about the magnificent and wonderful love of Jesus Christ. Now, even more poignant as we think about these sociological things, some of you have read about, it's controversial whether it exists or not, something called rapid onset gender dysphoria, if you heard of this, happens, it seems to happen in high schools in particular among uh, high school girls. So that if one of those young ladies, uh, one of those girls um, transitions um, and becomes a transgender boy, it, it, it is, it, for some reason, we're not sure about this, we're, they're trying to figure this out, many other, several other of her peers in that high school will also suddenly have gender dysphoria, rapid onset gender dysphoria, sociological, psychological things that we're studying and thinking about. 
Then there's the lens of philosophy, the lens of philosophy. Carl Truman wrote a book called Strange New World, and uh, he traces some of the philosophical developments in the Western world. He says, how can it be that if you had said to my great-grandfather that you identify as a man, but you have a woman's body, that would have sounded so unusually strange to him, my great-grandfather, but now to us, it is something for affirmation and applause and support. How, what happened? And he tried to tra- tries to trace it philosophically. Andrew Walker does something similar in his great little book, uh, God and the Transgender Debate. He says, he talks about relativism, our post-Christian age, radical individualism, and the sexual revolution. Now, I'm not an expert in any of these things, biology, sociology, psychology, or philosophy, um, though I, uh, they can be helpful to think about. For the balance of our time, what I want to do is I want to think with us, uh, think with you about the Bible and what the Bible says about this. We've already seen how insightful it is. What, what does it say about this? And I want to turn your attention to Genesis chapter 3. And I hope what you see here in Genesis chapter 3 as we look at it is that what the Bible describes here are human problems. Some of these things that we've talked about this morning may seem to you to be just very strange and alien and unusual. And, and these are problems that, uh, that our fellow human beings have that, are, that do not make them alien people. They, they, these uh, 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 challenges that they face are uh, of a different kind, a different degree, but not of a different kind. All fruit of the same root and uh, root that is endemic to us all. So under the, what does the Bible say, broad banner, we're going to talk about the rejection of God's authority. We're going to start there, the rejection of God's authority. And I want to read Genesis 3, 1 to 7, this very familiar passage. Look what it says. Uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like him, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Do you remember the three questions that Andrew Walker asks, says that all of us ask when we make a decision? Who has the authority to tell me what to do? Who has the knowledge to tell me what to do? And who is trustworthy enough to tell me what to do? Remember those questions? Who has the authority? Who has the knowledge? Who is trustworthy? And we believe that God has all three. God, our good creator, has all three. The authority, the knowledge, and the trustworthiness to tell us who we are and how we should live. In this passage of scripture, all three, not just his authority really, but all three of them are brought into question. His authority is brought into question when the serpent challenges Eve and says, you can eat what you want. You can do what you want. You don't have to listen to God. Or, and his knowledge, God's knowledge is called into question when, Satan, uh, when the serpent says, you will not die. He's wrong about that. And his trustworthiness is called into question when the serpent says, 
God knows what will happen when you eat this. You'll be just like him. He's holding out on you. He's keeping you from being as wise as he is. He's not good. He's holding out on you. He's not trustworthy. You can't trust him to be telling you the truth. Now, if God the creator doesn't have the authority, the knowledge, and the trustworthiness to tell us who we are and how we should live, then who does? Who's left? And the contemporary answer to that question is you. You have the authority and the knowledge and the trustworthiness to tell you who you are and how you should live. Do you remember Taylor Swift and what she said at the New York University graduation where they gave her a doctorate in fine arts? Look what she says. I'll remind you. I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news for you. It's totally up to you. I have some terrifying news for you. It's totally up to you. Now, that may be good news and it may be terrifying news, but I wonder if it's true news. Do you have the authority and the knowledge and the trustworthiness to make decisions for your life, to decide who you are and how you should live? Now, being an image bearer of God, you have some confidence, you have some confidence, but at what level of, your, of confidence do you have? Do you know enough? Do you have enough knowledge? Some of you have washed your car in the morning only to watch it rain in the afternoon. You didn't know any better. Do you have enough knowledge? Let's imagine that you uh, walk into the break room one morning at work. It's the day you've started your new diet, and some one of your coworkers, with evil intent, you're sure, brought donuts. Are you trustworthy in that moment? Are your instincts and your inclinations trustworthy at that moment, the first day of your diet, and there's donuts in the break room, and you already had your spinach fruit smoothie? Are your inclinations trustworthy at that point in time to tell you what to do that would be wise and good? Um, imagine a a someone goes to the counselor and says, I hate myself, I hate myself. And the counselor says, let's think about how you can change how you talk to yourself and what you tell yourself about yourself. That counselor is telling you, you're not trustworthy. Do you have the authority and the knowledge and the trustworthiness to tell you who you are and how you should live? This is the breaking point in the Bible here in Genesis chapter 3. It happens we're only a couple pages in, and this is the breaking point. It, it's just a piece of fruit. It, it's just a piece of fruit. What is the big deal? And yet, this is a declaration of independence that Adam and Eve are making here. It has terrible consequences. We already talked about the terrible consequence of the alienation in their body and in their relationship. But look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Here is more consequences. Uh, to the woman, God says, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Do you remember the commission that God gave Adam and Eve? They're supposed to what? Fill the earth and cultivate the earth. And you know what? Filling the earth is going to be very painful from now on. Cultivating the earth is not going to be easy either. Look at verse 18, uh, actually verse 17 in the middle. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Filling and cultivating is going to be very hard here now. Now, Paul, in the book of Romans, speaks to this in um, more elevated theological language. There's the narrative in Genesis 3, but there's the theological analysis that Paul gives us in Romans 1. I want to read several verses. You're probably familiar with these, but look at Romans 1. Um, and again, notice the rejection of God's authority, God's knowledge, and God's trustworthiness, and the consequences. They're terrible. Romans 1, for although they knew God, this is verse 21, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Uh, you don't have the knowledge that you think you do. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like immortal human beings, uh, like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Bodies, we have a body problem. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error, their sexual brokenness. But look, the list keeps going. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And here's this list. These are all the headlines in the Sunday newspaper. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. Who invented the internet again? They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Why do pastors abuse church members? Southern Baptist Convention this week released, or last week released a report detailing sexual abuse in some of their congregations. It's a long, horrible report, 300 pages. Why do pastors abuse those under their care? Think about verse 32 that I just read. They continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Why do churches hire pastors who have committed adultery or child abuse in the past? Why do 18-year-old men go into grocery stores and kill people? Why do 18-year-old men go into schools and shoot little children? Because we think we're independent. And we think we have the authority and the knowledge and the trustworthiness to make decisions for ourselves. It's disastrous. Now we move on. This rejection of God's authority manifests itself in a number of ways. I'll just mention three of them here before we finish. 
First one I want to mention is twisted desires, twisted desires. Now, the word twisted, I recognize, is a negative word it's supposed to be because we're talking about the deviation from God's good design. So twisted desires. Look at 1 Peter 2, 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Remember, in God's good design, everything is supposed to line up. Your sex, your gender, your gender identity, your sexual orientation, everything lines up. In, in God's original plan for creation, um, uh, for our own good, uh, we were supposed to be desirous and oriented toward good things, broccoli. But nobody in their right mind loves broccoli, right? Twisted desires, not that these desires are uh, chosen, but they're not trustworthy. You know that you're, they're not trustworthy. For proof, ask a three-year-old what they want to do. Well, that, does that three-year-old have desires that are in their own good, best interest? Try to eat and sleep and live according to the desires of a three-year-old, and you'll be dead in a few weeks. Twisted desires. Second, broken hearts. Or actually third on my list, I guess. Broken hearts. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful. It's deceitful, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. Deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Your heart lies to you. Your heart lies to you. It tells you that in order to be happy, you have to fulfill your desires. And anyone who objects to you fulfilling your desires is your enemy. They don't love you. So we have these twisted desires and these hearts that lie to us and say, you must, you must, in order to be happy, live out of your desires. Again, um, those who object, ask a three-year-old, how they feel about their parents when their parents say no to them. You're my enemy because you're telling me no. I realize, I know you're not a three-year-old. I know you're not a three-year-old. But the dynamics in your heart and mind are the same as they are in a three-year-old. You've had enough experience to cover it up so you don't look quite as obnoxious. But you have those same dynamics at work in your life. Then last here on my list, a darkened mind darkened minds, darkened minds. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 18. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, follow this chain. We reject God's authority. We have twisted desires, hearts that tell us in order to be happy, we must live out those desires, and minds that rationalize and tell us that it makes sense for us to fulfill those desires. Um, Do you recognize that pattern in your life? So you do what you want to do, and your brain tells you and convinces you that it's the sensible thing to do, that it's the reasonable thing to do. Eve we're going to eat this fruit. Yeah, it looks good. It's going to give me some good nutrition. It's going to make me wise. I mean, it makes perfect sense for me to eat this fruit. Um, Rejecting what the Bible says about sex and gender seems to make sense. It will make you happy. It's reasonable and rational. So the thinking goes. 
In reality, it's an expression of alienation from God. We have spent a fair amount of time this morning already singing and reading about what God has done to rescue us from this mess that we're in. God could have, because we're in rebellion against him, God could have just destroyed us. But instead, he's rich in mercy. And he has rescued us by sending his son to bear the condemnation we deserve on the cross. Uh, he, He bore that penalty we deserve, died and rose again and ascended to heaven and now gives forgiveness and reconciliation to this broken relationship to all who will turn to him and trust in him. And that turning is the beginning of this reconciliation here. It's turning toward a new life. It's recognizing God has the authority and the knowledge and is trustworthy to tell me who I am and how I should live. I mentioned last week the picture of Caitlyn Jenner that appeared on Vanity Fair magazine when Bruce Jenner introduced himself to the world as Caitlyn Jenner. And I noted uh, the unusual uh, uh, posing of that picture and that Jenner's hands are hidden because Bruce Jenner has big athletic hands. Now, I'm sure as Caitlyn Jenner, they're waxed and polished and moisturized, and, but, but the, the size of the hands didn't seem to match the picture. So the hands have to be hidden. Andrew Walker says, how ironic then that at the end of the Gospel of John, what is very important in the life of someone who had doubts about Jesus is that Jesus showed his hands. Look at my hands, my nail-scarred hands. They're not hidden. Here it is. Here is the evidence, the proof that the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, has the authority and the knowledge and is also trustworthy to tell us how to live. He offers to us a better life, not necessarily an easier life, but a better life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your kindness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful to you that you tell us the truth about our condition. Lord, we recognize that this lens through which we think about our world is uh, an unusual one, uh, one that um, does not always get an easy or a ready audience in this world. But again, I do pray that you would send us forth into the world to speak the truth and to celebrate the love of God. Fill us with compassion Fill us with courage. Make it so that we represent you faithfully before our coworkers and our friends and our family members. Uh, Help us, Lord, to love uh, in word and in deed by speaking the truth and magnifying the goodness of your design and your rescue through the Lord Jesus. Help us, oh help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.